director money nathan to my right hey. <laughs> what's going on i mean I, I finally got around to getting that put together and i want to apologize to charlotte thunderbird because it took me forever to just do that but the music is so cool and i had a great time putting it together i know kevin's been working on some stuff too so we'll have all kinds of fun things to debut uh, in the future with that really grateful to have her support and putting that little jingle together for us so welcome to the new cab my brother, Money Nathan, putting Beautiful. in that work. All right, I'm your host, TJ. That is my co-conspirator in this venture uh, to make you, uh, make you all smile. Uh, that's what we endeavor to do in short. Uh, and uh, let us uh, introduce to uh, my left over here, um, the lovely, the talented, <clears throat> the host of Deb's Data Dojo, none other than Deb. The host of Deb's Data Dojo. What what just happened? Somebody listen. Deb, are you there? Oh, I'm here. I'm sorry. I'm so excited. (laughs) She wanted to hear it twice. You're so okay. By the way, the the host of Deb's Data Dojo. Say hello to Deb. Hi, everybody. What's up? What's going on, Deb? I'm excited because we're talking about science today. Can I get it? Amen. And just below that, somebody who loves him some old stuff, and he also loves him some new stuff. He's a musician. He's a martial artist. Damn sexy beast, actually. Uh, Please put your hands together for Kevin. Yeah! Wow. How was that? That was was strong. Good. All right. And the newest member of Calling All Beings. Representing the Experiencer Nation, baby. She's not nationwide. She's worldwide. Put your hands together for Stephanie. DJ, best intros ever. Thank you, guys. What's up? Glad to be on board. She's bad. She's nationwide like ZZ Top, baby. All right. Our next two guests are the... Actually, they're two of the stars of uh, the film uh, A Tear in the Sky by uh, Caroline uh, Corey. And uh, she was, we were put on to these two gentlemen by uh, Miss Chrissy Newton, who was also in the movie, also part of Debrief Media, and uh, her assistant there, uh, Dylan, in her media uh, venture. So we are very, very excited to welcome the intelligently cool and the coolly intelligent David Altman and Dave Mason put their hands together. Hey. <laughs> Can I get an amen for these two brothers? Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. What is going on, boys? How's it going? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We're having a good time. Awesome. It is it, it is a pleasure to have you guys. One of you brothers is doing some scientific business. I was looking over uh, your stuff uh, last night. Checking out your equipment, super impressed. Have some questions about that. I'm sure. a little bit of a, a geek for certain types of uh, collection systems myself, uh, even though I play a jokester on here. 
and uh, with with David uh, David Altman, I want to find out a little bit about this brother. So if you would start with you, Mr. David, and as you so coolly suggested when we were backstage, and I said something idiotic like "Tell us about yourself." Now you said maybe we should wait till the show starts. I'm like, wow. You know what? We're going to give him a percentage of cab. At least we're going to talk about it. We'll talk about it. So go ahead, David. What's up, man? Hey, how's it going, guys? Sir. So, um, I guess I'll tell you how I got into this and what I do besides this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I started looking into this stuff at a very young age. Um, when my parents got divorced, I was probably like around seven or eight. My mom and I went to go live with my grandmother, and she worked at the library. So, after school, I would get dropped off at the library and just spend my days in the science fiction and paranormal sections, just reading whatever I could. Um, Then uh, years later, I mean, I always kind of looked into it personally, but through very strange circumstances, (laughs) I ended up working in television and I started working mainly on all of the different UFO shows. So I do um, consultant work for different series and documentaries. And I also do development, which is creating new TV shows. So essentially, so you the, were able to, to get into this on the creative side and bring it to right, the fore. Right, but I, yeah. So when I when I first joined up to do this, it wasn't even about Hollywood. I just wanted to do it with you know this expedition with my friends, and then it just turned out to be to be a movie, and so I was able to use you know both my research into you know UAP and my knowledge of structure for production into one into one thing. It's great. It takes so many types uh, uh, that that make this community of ours that we're coming at it from so many different angles. What's and and this is why these these conversations with other uh, people that are like us we're sort of part of this larger family. And now we can see how you fit in on that creative side to create something that people can can watch and consume and go, huh? Wow, uh, that really is happening out there. You know that kind of thing. So Nathan, talk to uh, talk to Mr. Uh, Mason. Yeah, I, I, well, first of all, I have a quick question for for Mr. Sure. Altman. Uh, so, so David, uh, I, I've always heard from people who've gotten into entertainment, you know, who who did it for their passion and everything, that it had its way of kind of dampening that passion. And for you, having done so many UFO shows and and kind of having that really interest to begin with has it changed that passion or has it only kind of further no uh, no way um, man it's like i love it all i do 24 7 is is my own research what what's really not in the movie um it didn't uh really fit in was i did a lot of research for probably two years on nothing but catalina island in the area talking mm. to people at newspapers fishermen all sorts of different you know like the people that that run the whale watches um, and got a lot of sighting reports. I got a lot of news articles from the 40s on, on sighting. So, you know, it's something. I also did um, I did an episode of Expedition X with Josh Gates, and I did the Catalina Island episode. So, I mean, it just, like, worked out perfectly, you know? Just everything I had, just... Amazing. Yeah. So, so everything I learned, I can use for work, pretty much. Yeah, that's really great. Thanks for for telling us about that because I think you're right. The show, the movie, doesn't necessarily give you that context, but that helps a ton. So you did a lot of research, looked into the history, and yeah. I guess like you probably picked those sites after looking all at all those different places where you could put up equipment. That that was stuff that you did as well. Right, right. Well, actually, the the um, 
where we were going to set up, I think that was more up to Caroline and Kevin Day and probably mm. Mason. Um, I don't know much about what went on at the other location. I was on Catalina Island with Michael mm. Hall. It was just me, Michael Hall, and our camera guy, Grant. And then Chrissy came just for a night. So the only way I really had communication with them was by, by phone. So, you know, mm-hmm. I saw what happened on, on Laguna when everybody else did when the movie came out. I, I mean, I, I saw the data as we were going over it when it, you know, when we were done, but I didn't know much until they told me. Nice. Very cool. Well, I love the movie and we're really excited to talk with you guys. Uh, you know, the science is such a big part of this story. And it, particularly right now, I think that the public is hungry for information not just sort of sort of the sensational stories, although we like those too. And so it's just exciting to see. I was geeking out during this film, people who have come at this topic with a passion and an interest uh, to try to get some real data and, and hopefully push this science forward. So really thank you for your contribution to that. And, and Mason, want to thank you as well. So um, I know we're going to go back and forth, kind of bounce around. Uh, DJ, do you want to kind of go yeah. through the panel? Uh, I do. Yeah, I just have one just at the outset. Uh, I just have one question for uh, Dave Mason, then we'll pass it over to uh, Debs or Kevin, whoever's going next. Um, so, Dave uh, Mason, so I I saw your array of uh, just at the outset, the FLIR cameras. I, I want to say you said you had six. Eight. Uh, we actually, Eight. well, we had one handheld, and so that was not hooked up to any recorder. Uh, and then we had uh, eight other uh, FLIR cameras that were uh, set up. Did it, um, are they looking in different spectrums, and that's why you had the eight? Or were they all work uh, seeing in the exact same spectrum, but you just were looking, it was a coverage issue? It was more of a coverage issue. Okay. And uh, it also related to uh, temperature issue, because if you angle the cameras at different portions of the sky, you're going to have different background temperatures. So there is some spectral shift, but it was more of a coverage, uh, trying to make sure that we weren't going to miss anything. And we had the cameras orientated from the rooftop uh, to, facing toward the west, mm-hmm. uh, toward over Catalina Island, where mm-hmm. we were up at it at different angles and we notated the angles at which camera was aimed and then even of course one camera aimed at the um the terminator of the ocean so that we would just see if anything was happening in that region so we wanted to cover a lot of ground and we ran uh, you know the all cameras 24 7 uh, running them into digital recorders uh, and studio quality recorders and this stuff you know was a lot of data storage at the rate that we were recording and but can you just tell us before we uh, pass it over to to Deb? Deb is our researcher on the show uh, and <laughs> UFO connector. If you go to her website, you are going to find an amazing dearth of stuff that she works on for hours and and just keeps mm-hmm. adding documents and links uh, every week. But could you tell us a little bit about your um, about yourself, please, just so the audience knows uh, of of your field of endeavor coming into this. Well, it began at a very young age. Um, like Dave Altman, I was uh, checking out books at the library. Uh, of course, the internet didn't exist at the time. And it was kind of a taboo subject. If you were reading these UFO books, you know, you didn't want to show this to your friends because they thought you were crazy. And a couple of things that I notated that was happening in, in the phenomenon that was reported was that many pilots were reporting that their onboard compasses were going crazy. They, you know, the... Uh, Ships navigational compasses also spinning wildly. 
And I came up with a device to, um, to detect that. I built a UFO detector at age 13, which comprised of a compass um, aimed at magnetic north with a phototransistor and an LED. I, I remember using parts from a broken television set, and I built this thing on a piece of plywood. And it worked. Uh, so whenever the I compass would deviate from magnetic north, it would send up an alarm. And then the other uh, feature that I noticed about the reports was that uh, many were indicating these objects were radiating light that seemed to fluctuate. And at that age, at a young age, I'm thinking, well, they don't need to see where they're going with light. I mean, they they're, must be very advanced. It's not likely a byproduct of their their propulsion systems. So the presumption is that light must have some sort of communication or content within it. And so I came up with these uh, photodial binoculars, and that was actually in 1981 when I, I built my first pair, showed it to my friends and family, and with those binoculars, and I've got, a, I've got them right here. So you can see there's the, uh, volume, or that's the step gain control, volume control uh, on this side, and then there's a gain control. And then what's also built into these binoculars is a defocused laser. And what this does is it, it's defocused, so you don't want to blind pilots or anything. So when it, by the time it gets right. into distance, no one's going to see it. But this laser is modulated by the light that's received within it. So that if there's something received, and of course, whatever is transmitted from something extraterrestrial, we're, we're not going to understand it. It's going to be gibberish. Right. I can at least relay it back. And then that'll be de delayed about uh, 20 microseconds just through the circuitry. And it's, it's at least an attempt to communicate. So, you know, we're trying to relay back what you just sent us in a different form. You know, maybe, maybe they won't be insulted by that, but that is what, what the binoculars do. They also can be plugged into a loudspeaker or a recording device or headphones. I usually use them with headphones. Um, and then that, in that device, I've also got, this is a more recent uh, invention from a, uh, about uh, three, three years ago. It's a pair of night vision goggles that do using a different principle. So it's not, not the same design, but this has a defocused laser that has a ultraviolet laser. And then I can blend ultraviolet and red and then red. So it's, it's a continuous variable to it. And then this also takes modulated light and converts it into sound. Um, I did post a demo video of the binoculars and this night vision device that, that does that. And this can also be connected to loudspeaker or recorder device or anything. So just, just some new devices that can be used as in our toolbox for researching this phenomenon and looking at the light spectrum. We're not looking at radio spectrum because in my, my belief is radio to them is yeah. the stone age. It's stone yeah. age. It's, <laughs> It's smoke signals. And if you look at our progression of our technology, like when Nikola Tesla invented radio, and I credit him, not the other guy. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, he, um, it, he was working within the kilohertz range just because those were the tools that were available to him. But now we keep pushing the RF technology faster and faster, um, you know, and, and we're in the gigahertz, gigahertz. range and, and, and trying to get, we're trying to break the terahertz barrier just in, in the RF technology. 500 gigahertz is kind of where the plateau is at the present time, but that's not even done in uh, commercial products because it's too high a frequency. And when you're using light, we, we are working in a much higher frequency. So behind me, you'll see that light wave transmitter that's uh, featured in the movie. One's an infrared spectrum, 850 nanometer. The other one's a full spectrum. 
and then the other one as an ultraviolet. There's some slight ultra um, slight overlap, but the object here is to do spread spectrum modulation of frequency modulation and amplitude modulation of content. You know, and mm -hmm. we can do it high frequency. I, I prefer to use music or the mm -hmm. sounds of whales or to relay right. back. Um, I, I don't believe that putting out prime numbers or code or anything is going to impress whatever it is we're dealing with because whatever numbers they're using it, it's our, our math looks like arithmetic. So, um, I, I, I agree. I totally agree with what you're saying. And this was actually going to be the crux of my question, but I, I mm -hmm. have to pass it over to my mm -hmm. co-host so I don't get fired and stuff like that. Okay, sure. Um, you know, but I, I really love that and it makes total sense. And when I heard you say that in, in the movie, the, uh, it really resonated with me. But for the time being, I got to pass it over to Debs. Sure. So Deb, what's up? Yeah. So actually, I'm fascinated by your um, night vision goggles and what they mm -hmm. do um, and how you're using the light to make sound. So one of my mm -hmm. questions is about those. I, I want to know if you're considering um, making an available form of those goggles for the public because i would love to have something like that too mm -hmm. how much that would cost and what uaps sound like i don't don't know what they sound like yet i know i know what can converse commercial jets sound like and satellites and starlight and meteors in fact I, I, in this youtube video you could hear hear a meteorite amongst that stuff i don't know exactly what they're going to sound like I, it's probably not going to make a, a sound that we would be expecting um, it, it really was a, a big effort to, to make these things. And I, I've been kicking around the idea of making that into a, a production device. Uh, it would be a very costly device for one thing, just because alone it's Gen 3 plus night vision, PBS 7s that, um, that that requires. So just that alone is, is very expensive. But in the process of making, you know, micro miniaturizing the circuitry, because these things stock there's really no room inside them. I mean, there's very little room for you to have circuitry. So it, uh, to, to take something that already was refined in technology and then refine it more and fit components within it, that was a real challenge as well. Um, and uh, yeah, the other device, I, I don't have it in front of me. I, uh, I have a thermal camera that I re-engineered. That was the most difficult thing to do uh, from an engineering standpoint. And then from the other standpoint of taking something that worked perfect as it was intended yeah <laughs> and going in there and just hacking it but i didn't just hack it i had to you know pull out circuitry put in my own circuits make it compatible with the the stock circuitry and i, I engineered a thermal camera that'll take cold temperatures or heat or warm temperatures and convert that into sound and, wow. and that device that device and that's also on youtube so you can see this and this particular device i i, I was experimenting with it outdoors and a bird flock flew overhead and I aimed the camera and I could hear the temperatures of the birds as they were flying. I could hear the wings beating because there's variations in, in temperature. I could also hear bugs as they flew in front because it would make a, they just, they just sound like a bug, but I was hearing the long wave infrared. And, and the reason for that device was um, I have a couple of thermal camera videos of anomalous objects I've recorded over the years that showed a fluctuate in energy or fl fluctuate in cold temperatures. And that's to me, that's got to have some sort of content to it. And you have to have some sort of a device that can sense that modulation and decode it uh, and then be able to transmit that back. I also built a long wave infrared transmitter 
and it's also in this uh, demonstration video. That that's the device for me was the more pinnacle of invention, uh, from just because it was so much effort to to do what it does. Um, but, but more people are talking about the night vision light to sound just because it it, it certainly it's cool because you can look through it and hear what you're looking at. If only you were more productive, Dave, I think you could actually be successful. You know, if you were putting a little more effort into the stuff, okay? I just want to know uh, how many warranties you've voided at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like 17 of them. Kevin, we're going back. We got to get back to Altman uh, with Kevin. They both, you know, they both probably have some pretty nice tattoos. Um, and, uh, well, actually, yeah, we know Altman does because we saw them. They were, they were awesome. So... Uh, Kev, what do you got for all? <laughs> what do you got for all? Of well, I mean, I, I just have a oh, question. I'm I mean, you seem freezing up. For... <laughs> uh, am I freezing? No, you're good. He's back. Is he back? Wait, he's yes. Oh, it's kind of going wonky. Oh, okay. All right. Can you hear me? Audio is good. Got gotcha you loud and clear, uh, Dave. So, all right, I got a question for you. Um, so this okay. is more of an overall umbrella question. So, um, I mean, taking into consideration, you know, your mysterious airship waves from the 1800s, you know, you've got your, which were in New Zealand, Canada, the U.S., you've got your sky chariots, your flying shields. You know, my point is, it always seems to be something that's ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And assuming that our physics and math is universal, I mean, do you think that maybe the phenomenon is a look I, at I can't our hear potential anything. future? You can't hear me? Okay. Oh. Yeah. Um, let's see if we can get uh, David Altman out and back. And right. then, okay. And then. Oh, wait. Wait. You're back. Oh, well, he's back. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, I could hear. Okay, cool. Uh, All right. Kevin, go for it. All right. I'm just saying, assuming that, like, our physics or right, math. Go to Mason. Is... Go to Mason. And okay, Mason. Again, I'll ask you this question. <laughs> All right. So, do you think that maybe the phenomenon is is a potential look into the future of us? Like, if we're on the same path, we're using physics, we're using math, universal principles. Do you think maybe we're going to end up like this with this kind of tech eventually? It is possible. Uh, we can't yeah. deny any any possibility because there's so many facets to this mystery that that adds to it. And so it, whether we are looking at ourselves from the future or a visitor from outer space or or something that's actually coexisted with us for for eons, um, yeah, that's anyone's guess at, at this point. That's I, uh, it is. Uh, everything is still on the table till it's off the table. Money, yeah. Nathan. Yeah, I just want to know. I mean, was it? It just feels like super lucky that you guys were able to capture stuff in the short time mm -hmm. that you were filming, and that makes me think that maybe it wasn't luck. And you kind of alluded to this before we got onto the show. In your estimation, what did your intuition sort of say? How how often is this stuff happening in in the sky? You think it's just all the time, everywhere? It's for the most part, it is uh, everywhere. Um, you know, I've started with by recording from my own backyard and it was purely by accident. And uh, so I'll just give you this, this synopsis of that. It was in uh, May 3rd, uh, 2005. I took home one of the, my company's uh, thermal cameras. Um, and this was a $70,000 uh, thermal camera. It had a built-in uh, cryogenically cooled uh, imager. And I took it home 
thinking I might be able to apply it in long wave infrared uh, astrophotography and trying to do something new. I, I was doubtful it would work and found that there really wasn't enough uh, transfer from through the Earth's atmosphere. And so my next step was, well, this would be cool to use this camera to record commercial jets flying overhead. And that's all I was thinking. I wasn't thinking UFOs. And just within minutes of using this camera, and this was on a uh, an afternoon where the sun was just setting, and the camera detected two very cold objects that were very large, uh, about a five degrees apparent field of view, which is equivalent to putting your arm, your arm out at a full length and then spreading your hands. So, and I looked straight up. Thermal camera indicated they were in the field of view, but I couldn't see them. And I had better than 20-20 vision. And so I tracked this with the camera. I recorded them. And when I went back to look at the data, I found that they were measured as minus 30 Fahrenheit, according to the camera's calibrated temperature span. Hmm. And so What I altitude? I don't know exactly, but they were minus 30 Fahrenheit. So if I was to get the... Uh, Standard lapse rate. Yeah the, yeah, the stuff about what the, was at altitude, but there's other presumptions because there would be presumption that the objects were black body source versus reflective. There's a lot of other factors that go into thermography. And I, I, the fact they made no noise and they moved slow and I couldn't see them, that, that just captivated me. And then uh, next day I got nothing but birds, bugs, and aircraft. And I thought, well, that's just the way it is. It's one of those once in a lifetime things. And a few months later, I set the camera up again on a tripod while doing astrophotography and uh, came back to review the videos. And there were just some very strange objects that were recorded, cylinders, uh, V objects that were flying backwards, triangles, uh, something that looked like an undulating serpent that measured about minus 70 Fahrenheit. And, uh, and I'm going, what is this stuff? This doesn't make any sense. It, they're not bugs. They're, they're not the conventional things. And I contacted William Puckett of UFOs and W, and he came to my house and got to see my setup and witness these objects were, were appearing in the camera. And at the time, I was contracting in my company. Uh, we were contracting with a lot of different entities, and I thought if I come out and talk about UFOs, I could lose those contracts. So I just kind of stayed quiet. I supplied William Puckett a number of my videos, but I wanted to re remain anonymous. But over the years of recording, I found that there were variations of the activity uh, because 2006 had less activity. I was getting more of the conventional stuff. And then there was a few years where I got nothing. I mean, I set up my thermal cameras, recorded, came back, reviewed, or if I walked, monitored live, and it, I would just get the birds, bugs, and aircraft. And, and so it was like there was some hits and misses on it. And, and then 2016, I came back very active with the thermal cameras and found that I was late to the party. There were a lot of strange things going on in the sky, including objects that were behind commercial aircraft and in front of a commercial aircraft. And what differentiated them was that their relative temperature to the aircraft were much colder, uh, often in you know minus 30, minus 80 Fahrenheit range, some crazy temperatures. Um, so as far as the phenomenon goes, I know it's worldwide. I, I don't think it really matters. I think you just have to have clear skies and, and maybe a combination of being near water, lakes, uh, mountains, uh, oceans. There's some things that seem to correlate to the, uh, the sightings, as well as being near airports, because I think they have um, an interest in our aircraft. And just for everybody's reference, standard temperature at 20,000 feet would be about minus 12 Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. about minus 24 Celsius if, on yeah. a standard day. So that just so if he's seeing minus 80, 
That's you know, this, this is, <laughs> that's a yeah, lot. It's you, very cool. I got to tell you about one object, and this was with William Puckett, who's a meteorologist, so he would be the one to know. And um, in one of my videos, I had a very cold V, uh, chevron-shaped object that was transiting. And I, I presented it to William Puckett, and I said, you know, what would be the temperature? And he says, well, given the back, the, the reading was, I think, minus 70 or minus 75. He said that would have placed it about 90,000 feet elevation. Well, then, since I knew the camera field of view, which was 15 degrees by 20 degrees for this particular camera, I could then measure the amount of area the, the object occupied and then do some trigonometry. I did that. The object measured 2,200 feet across. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy, a crazy number. Yeah. And, and so it, it doesn't make sense. And then you know, people can say, oh, in thermography, we have this factor of emissivity. Yeah, that's true. So if you have an object that's in the sky and say like a commercial jet, it's always going to measure warmer, even though it might be up at 35,000 feet and in a cold environment, it's going to be reflecting back the crust of the earth's uh, um, soil. I mean, it, the soil will be heat radiating heat and then reflected back from the underside of the aircraft back to the thermal camera. So you will get higher temperatures. Yes. And then if you have objects that are flat black that aren't going to be reflecting uh, they're going to be more indicating their environment. So if that's the case, then the problem that happens with these strange objects that have been reported is they must be immense in scale. And it, it throws out the drone theory and all these things that people would like to throw at it. And uh, we're going to pass it over to Stephanie, our uh, experiencer, but even just flying through the air, that friction creates heat as well. In addition, yeah. so you have the sun's heat, got the earth's heat, and the heat created by friction of that wing form or that fuselage yeah. flying through the air creates its own heat. But let us yep. turn it over to our UAP experiencer, Miss Stephanie. <laughs> and that's us quite a bit. Hi. Uh, nice to see you both. And I just also wanted to mention how cool it was that you both had your nose in the books at a very young age. And you're both now serving as a liaison for information to deliver this information through, you know, documentaries and film. So very and very we're cool both, and, and we're both dave and you're yeah. both dave. and th and that serves as a very uh you know good standard for for kids to follow as well so great great um that you guys are both uh you know serving out you know this almost self-fulfilling prophecy as you were as a kid so very cool um and love the movie so my question for you is a little bit more on the emotional side because you know i know you're both nuts and bolts and your tech and, uh, you know, we all appreciate all of the work that you're putting forth towards finding out, you know, answers for what we all want to know. And my question is, Dave uh, Mason, I know, you know, that you have these instruments that are used for monitor monitoring the potential for communication. And my question for you both is, tech aside, how emotionally prepared are you for communication? How do you feel about that tech, tech aside? Uh, you want to take that, Altman? To yeah, you, buddy. Yeah, get, no, bring it to Dave. Dave, Dave you Altman, are, you can answer I figured that. he was already yeah. on the screen, so it's right on. Yeah. You can fix yeah. that, cool. baby. Cool. So, I had to so, throw it in. So um, one thing is I'm not 100% all nuts and bolts. Um, okay. I do think that there's some other weird stuff going on with these things. It's just, it's just too crazy to be just that. I... Right. It also could be multiple things, you know, um, mm -hmm. 
from from what I've learned, my personal opinion is I think it's something that's always been here and could possibly be living underwater. That's, nice. you know, that's just my personal opinion. Um, nope. I'm not sold on anything 100% until I'm convinced or obviously shown the evidence. So Right. Well, and it does make sense over by Santa Catalina Island, there's San Clemente Island. And I know that there's been submergible objects that have been also detected. And mm-hmm. our military has also had some events happen where we've had a sub go down. And I wonder if that has any correlation with what's going on underneath. So uh, yeah, very questionable suspect for sure. I agree. Yeah, that whole area, Catalina Island was actually used um, by the OSS during World War II, which is the precursor Mm -hmm. to the CIA. That was their training ground. So, (laughs) you know, it started back then. And then um, one of the articles I mentioned earlier that I got, um, it was from July 7th, 1947, front page of the Catalina Island newspaper, and it's two um, retired airmen spot flying discs, and they took mm-hmm. pictures, and you can find those pictures. Yeah. And that was the same yeah. week as Roswell, the same week as Kenneth Arnold, the same week as a whole bunch of other stuff that happened. So it, I, doubt it was di- I, I doubt it was different objects. I think whatever they saw was the same thing that whole week. It does make sense. It makes sense if they're entering the water and moving without, you know, the, the splash and, you know, how, how are these crafts going about the atmosphere and into the water? There's a connection. I do agree with that. Yeah. And, uh, also, um, battle of LA, that object, 1942 went down mm-hmm. the coast out to Catalina and then out to the ocean and gone. Mm-hmm. Same nice. spot. That was the drone, man. It was the Chinese. Yeah. anyway (laughs) anyway so i you know just to your your organization i'm wondering if there is any sort of a quota or limitation on david's since i'm a david and you know i would apply but i'm you know i don't want to do that in in vain if if you guys have already reached a certain limitation well okay there's um, no limit i'll apply give me an application (laughs) give me the website i'll get my cv just kidding um dave so of all this, of all the, the, the data that, that you've gathered, um, and it's interesting of what uh, your, your colleague said over there, because Ryan Graves also could not see with Mark One eyeballs that, um, that gimbal. Uh, that was something that appeared on his sensor, but that he couldn't see with Mark One eyeballs. So of the data that you've collected uh, through these uh, array of equipment that you guys have, what did you find the most compelling that had that sort of oh shit moment. Uh, Is this to me? me? It, it, or, no, it's okay. too. Uh, I'm gonna start. We gotta get, we gotta get some Altman time in here, man. All right, you're so that's easy for me. Um, the object that I filmed, um, I okay. So for the first probably two days when we got on the island, we went out there unprepared by some miscommunication, and for the first two days, I wasn't able to record any of the night vision that I caught. It wasn't until I think the second or third day that we realized that we could record through our iPhones to anything that we saw. So wow. the object, the object that I filmed, I could not see with the naked eye. It was directly in front of me, and I could only see it with the night vision. So, um, and I'll say it again: I don't know what it was, but I know what it wasn't. No, it wasn't a satellite, wasn't a plane, wasn't a drone, it wasn't any of those things. I have no idea. I don't know what it was. And that's, Given what approximate, was, and, that's what tri- and that's what we triangulated was that. Okay. What, what did you th- uh, figure that altitude was of that object? You know, I 
don't even remember offhand. I just remember because I was on a roof and I was mm-hmm. looking at the horizon where the where the ocean kind of meets the sky, and mm-hmm. it was right. It was like right in that in that halfway spot, you know, in direct my eye, eyesight. So it wasn't high. It wasn't high. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, so, uh, uh, Dave Mason, we could just, uh, ask you that same question. Cause you seem very keen on that one. What, what was it of what you gathered? What, what provided you that? Oh my God, uh, moment, uh, it's a family show after all, um, as Nathan likes to say, um, what, what was it of what you've gathered thus far that, that, uh, was moving for you? It was after our expedition, we were reviewing the, um, the data and this i was reviewing the FLIR videos and this is out very arduous because we have over 600 hours of FLIR video to re, uh, analyze and an object uh, appeared um that was it was first it was carolyn corey spotted it in in her reviews and then matthew sadagas using his software also found it i actually missed it when i went over that time and it's an object that is uh, it appears to be a maroon color object in the movie now understand and clear there these are false colors these are just gradients to help give you visual acuity but the object materializes over several pixels and then rotates or appears to rotate and then fade out and what i found very striking about that wasn't the shape or anything else of, of that it was the fact that the microbolometer cells decreased in temperature momentarily and then returns to a normal temperature. Now, when you get hot pixels, they are in fact white or, or they'll go dark, but they don't just gradiently go in and out. I've never seen that happen. It's not impossible, it's highly improbable, but the most improbable part is the fact that it got colder. If it was bombarded by say uh, radiation and say a big cosmic ray struck it, well, that would raise the temperature of the microbolometer cell and then cause a warmer manifestation, not a colder one. And so that that really got my attention. Um, D- David, was that a purposeful cloaking attempt? Do you think I, that that was a, a, an attempt to obfuscate the fact that your sensor was picking it up? Possibly. Uh, it, this could also be some very unknown atmospheric phenomenon where we have zones that just suddenly become cold and then return. Um, but I, what I do find that in a lot of these objects that I've recorded in, in thermography over the years is that um, they're detected in the wavelengths of 13,000 to 14,000 nanometer wavelengths, much longer, where our visual is like 350, 380 to about 750, give or take 50 nanometers. You know, there's people who see differently. Our night vision technology, whether, whether it's your home security system or Gen 3 is going to go down to about a thousand nanometer to maybe 1100 nanometers and then here we're imaging wavelengths well past any of that equipment and it could be that these objects are actually only emitting those particular wavelengths which also corresponds to temperature and it might be cloaking um it could be that they're low mass i mean you could throw a lot of different theories behind it yep it's interesting i gotta pass it over to deb's my friend Hello. So this is sort of a question for both of you. There was a very significant conference this weekend with SEU, and I am aware that UAPX was talking about findings related to the Mm -hmm. film. And I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us something that may have come out at the conference about the data. 
Um, I haven't been copied on that yet since I'm not in attendance. Uh, Matthew Sadaga said as soon as he's got the video, he's going to copy me on, on that. I know that they're covering much of what I uh, had uncovered in this expedition. And so they, I know that they are always cautious about everything because you never want to say something's absolute without having all the facts. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people who want to jump to conclusions against it uh, without even having all the all the facts presented to them uh, because we're in essence taking people out of their comfort zone. And also, also the fact that um, there are other groups who are wanting to do the same and they don't like the fact that we have taken the limelight or we have taken this and taken it to another level. They should just do it. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Fortunate. Yeah. It gets political, but we, unfortunately. We, 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 yeah. we I'm, I'm pretty sure what they are covering, though, are the events that were in the film, because that's mm -hmm. the data that was looked at first. So it would be, you know, the anomaly. It would be probably some of the objects that were falling. And I think there's like three of, and the triangulation. That makes um, sense. OK, thank you. Hey, guys, uh, we haven't heard about your new organization. We did hear that you have. You are not with UAPX. You're with a different organization now. I wonder, am I, am I not correct about that? No. So we're no longer with UAPX, but we're not members of any other organization. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was, uh, I was solicited and, uh, this one organization who solicited me wanted, in essence, uh, they, they wanted my inventions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, they wanted to use it as a banner, and I kind of felt like this wasn't really a, serving my interest in that. And so I dropped contact, and I kind of think that they're not very happy with me about this. <laughs> I mean, uh, do, do they have matching 401k like our podcast? I, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's true. Well, you guys yeah. are a part of the Council of Daves, so that is <laughs> some organization. Um, so I, a question I wanted to ask is, uh, so after having done this sort of analysis near Catalina, are there other sites that you're really kind of keen on getting a out to uh, that you have either heard of or maybe just interested in because of the properties of that particular area? Want me to take that one? Yeah, go ahead. So properties that I want to go to or properties that I can go to. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, those are good questions. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get you an area 51 by yeah. Monday. <laughs> so um, a couple of places I could think off the bat. One would be Chris Bledsoe's mm -hmm. area. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another one would be a, uh, a newer property. It's not much known about it. It's called The Meadow that Trey Hudson uh, has been writing a lot about. Um, those would probably be my top two. Um, okay. I mean, those then, are probably properties that I heard there's some weird stuff going on mm -hmm. and there, you know, not many people have been there. So that's, that's why. Got it. Okay. I right, are both, I know with the Bledsoe property, it is relatively close to the ocean, uh, with mm -hmm. the meadow property. Is it similar to that as well? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> All right, what, what about uh, from you, uh, Mason? What do you think in terms of um, locations that you have an interest in? I, I actually have some spots identified. Uh, I Because of some privacy concerns with the property owners, I don't want to mention, um, but they really look like great 
sites for uh, doing a, a sky watch. Mm. We were going to copy the GPS coordinates. Nathan, do you get your... I know. We'll, we'll, or we'll At take him ready. an MGRS. That's already. Well, you can, you can do this anywhere, though. I'm kidding. You know, I'm kidding. We're kidding. Yeah. You could do this anywhere. Yeah. You don't really. I mean, I get the question, but you right. don't need to to have a hot area. It, that's that would be. I, I, I think it's the most important is just to have at least a moderately clear sky with open space. And I, I, I want to get back to the earlier question, and this was about you know what do you do to prepare uh, mm. you know mentally for these things, and I. Um, yeah. What I found from my experience is if I go out in a sky watch where if I do a simple one with night vision goggles and, and some friends and just say, we're just going to look for anomalous stuff, we see this stuff. It'll, it'll, you'll see satellites that change trajectories, so therefore they're not a satellite. Um, and then there's other activities I engage in, like uh, with uh, Bellevue College, we would do these, um, uh, what they call the Table Mountain Star Party uh, in, in Washington State. And there would be 600 astronomers gathered here at this star party up on top of this ridge 6,000 feet elevation and everybody would 600 you know astronomers telescopes in the field everywhere and in attendance to this thing I never once heard anyone say oh look at that thing in the sky you know we, we certainly got excited when we saw the International Space Station or uh, a meteorite but nothing abnormal and and it's, it's like because you're when you're looking through a telescope, you're just looking through either the eyepiece, which is a very narrow field of view, or you're looking at a data set on a computer trying to do tracking of your, your telescope's coordinates so that your exposures are well coordinated on the object that you're imaging. So your, your eyes aren't always focused on the sky. And I don't know if this is because if you go into a, a scenario where you want to see something and therefore you see it, or if you're making it happen, by having that that level of, of thought. But those have been my experiences. If you do go out and you have the right mindset and you have you're with people who also have the right mindset and not people who are disruptive. I'll I'll just tell you there was a time I went out on an event and this one person just showed up and was loud and obnoxious and I just knew game's over, you know, the, the evening is shot, we're not gonna see anything. And and so it's yeah. just like you gotta have the right people. And I apologize for doing that, and that's why I left, Dave. I was that guy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, hey, hey uh, real, real quick, before I forget, and I have not mentioned this during an interview yet. So I think it was the third night we were out there. We were on the roof, and we were supposed to have the hotel roof closed to ourselves. Oh, I know the but, story. <laughs> yeah. So this guy comes up, and he is wasted. And he did not care what we said. He was going to be up on that roof. And he saw us filming and he wanted to, like the last thing I wanted him to know was we were doing a UFO thing because I can just imagine what would have happened. So he, he asked me, he's like, what are you guys doing up here? And I'm like, uh, sorry, sir, we're just filming something. But this is actually closed right now um, to the public. And right when I said that, that was the wrong thing to say, because then he wasn't going to leave. We ended up having to call the hotel, like the owners and the cops, and they finally got him down. And then when... <laughs> When, when they when they told him, I guess when he finally figured out what we were doing up there, he wanted to come up and talk to us again. But by then it was too late. But he was up there for like a good three, a good three hours uh, at least. You have to come up with a backup plan for those kind of instances. Oh, we're taking pictures, anniversary too. pictures. It's a school project. Nothing, nothing yeah. to be concerned with. Yeah, yeah this is this is kind of this kind of coincides with what happened uh, where we were set up on Laguna Beach. Uh, mm -hmm. We had the cops show up. 
Uh, we had an irate neighbor show up who was a neighboring to this mansion. Uh, he thought that we were spying on him with all his gear. Um, the movie, I guess the movie cops making sure that we were permitted. It was like, a, and then we got buzzed by two different helicopters and we were able to see that where they, by getting the tail number, we knew where they had traveled. Uh, they, they took off from one airport, they looped around the house and then went back to another airport. And this happened twice we were obviously being spied on. Yeah. And and that was one of the concerns we had while filming because I didn't want somebody to know, okay, we're going to be there at this time where they would just go fly a drone and then say, yeah, we, we kept it pretty hush hush of when we were going to be because, there. Because yeah. then they would just say, see, they'll videotape themselves flying the drone and then just say, this is what we did. And this is what those guys caught case closed. And, yeah. you know, because people like to play that kind of stuff. So we didn't want to put that information out there. Plus we had the right gear to vet that, you know, the, I had the RF spectrum and analyzer to look for the frequencies of, of what was being would be trans, um, transmitted to a drone craft. So, and there's just no chance that that would happen. And Jeremy's ADSB out kit that he has with that upside and down, down antenna will give you all that information of what the, what the tail number is, what kind of craft it is, and yeah, that and is, they can that track is. it and all that stuff. Yeah, the ADSB uh, data is actually something you could just look at on your iPhone. So you can you can watch and see where aircraft are and what altitude and where they're going. It's it's pretty amazing that that's available to the public. They were stuff, sending man. me screenshots every five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm trying to think of who's before I get to my communication question. Uh, Kevin's up. All right. So I, I want to tell you guys, I really, really enjoyed your, your documentary. So as a, a behaviorist, you know, I value data that's specific, observable, measurable. I really, really love your approach. It was scientific. I think um, this is the way to go to bringing it mainstream. I think it, it's the way to go. Um, so my question to you is, um, nobody asked about the anomaly. I know you guys were calling it the, uh, the uh, what was it called, wormhole? But I know that was pure speculation. That's not actually what it is. Um, have you learned about anything since about it? Um, unfortunately, I don't have that data. So when, oh, okay. we, when we went back to our, you know, our private lives, I have all the FLIR recordings. I have the original thumb drive recordings. Everybody else mm -hmm. has copies of, of that. But I don't have what was taken from the UFO DAP camera, which is a, that camera is owned by Carolyn Corey. And um, I don't have that data, and I don't have the radiation data that Matthew Sadagas had gathered. And so mm -hmm. I, I, because I was getting overwhelmed when we were at the site because I had to be responsible for eight clear cameras, making sure they were calibrated and running uh, to make sure uh, the data loggers weren't being overwhelmed and that we, we could reload new thumb drives to them. Uh, it, it was it was very, very busy maintaining all that equipment. So to put it in perspective, mm -hmm. everything you saw on the rooftops is owned by me. Yeah, I was the one everything. who... Everything, Everything. Uh, with the exception, there was uh, there was one camera the on a tripod, the UFO DAP camera, which was the camera on the wooden tripod off on the corner of the rooftop. That's owned by Carolyn Corey. She purchased that for the purpose of being able to gather data using that automated system. So, yeah, I had a tremendous amount of okay. stuff to manage. So when it came down to more data and, and here we had two PhDs ready to go, um, I just let you guys, you know, take go look at that thing and see what you can find out. All right. Do you have any speculations on it? 
I, I really don't. I can't make comments. Wow. I really, I, yeah. because what I, I really like to look at data uh, when somebody just shows me a photo of like a UFO and it's just a, a, a blue background and an object. I have no idea if that's a bug or some massive object in the distance. I mean, you really can't preside a, an opinion on it without getting more information uh, right. to, um, to gather on it. Hey, Kev, though, yeah. just to throw a also, bug in your ear, there was that capsule that popped into frame and popped out. That you That's might, true. yeah, I remember that. That was that thing, cool. yeah, and that was what what strikes me was the fact if, if that thing was a warm manifestation, I would have thought, yeah, possibly a very high energy cosmic ray struck the microbolometer and caused it to heat up momentarily and cause that. But the fact it went negative energy or temperature, it wouldn't be at the microbolometer level. It would have to be at the mic uh, at the A to D converter behind the microbolometer if it got struck. But I, I really don't think we can okay. replicate that in the lab. Well, that was something. I else, have a, a, a follow up too. Um, how comfortable were you guys in those outfits? In the uh, the khaki and the red. The, I the target it. team member. <laughs> oh, you mean that? You mean those red shirts? The, yeah, the red, it, yeah, yeah. It was. It, yeah, we had to kind of make a decision I was the about most the colors. Comfortable. The, the, <laughs> shirts, the shirts were fine. Uh, it was a hot day. Um, I mean, it was from a production standpoint because I wanted a like a blue shirt. Because red shirts, let's just face it, all the guys in Star Trek except one that wore red shirts were. <laughs> That's where I was going. <laughs> they all they all got the, killed. The hats you know? were cool. The hats were okay. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, you, you kind of felt like you were next in line to get zapped by the the three headed alien or whatever. It was. Right. <laughs> Not all to right. mention, I was on an island, at a like a bed and breakfast that had no washer and dryer like 24 seven, I only had two shirts and two pairs of shorts. So I had to figure out every single night how I was going to wash my clothes. Cause after being up on a roof all day in the sun, I mean, they were drenched. I had to, wa- yeah. had to figure out, I paid the lady like 20 bucks to wash my shirt. I wash yeah. that in the shower, David, when I, when I'm, <laughs> when I was away from the air force somewhere, I'd be like, Hey man, no laundry, go in the shower, soap it up, rinse it off, hang it up. So, yeah. Yeah. The we second a, I could uh, put something else on, I put it on. Oh yeah. Yeah. We actually had a failure of our dryer at the mansion. It worked for the first few days and then it quit running. I think it broke a belt. And so we ended up just hang drying all of our laundry uh, off the balcony. Uh, and luckily it was a hot, dry day. So everything dried quickly. This is true sacrifice, David Mason. I salute <laughs> yeah. you. Uh, Stephanie, <laughs> let's get, we got to start to get in our last round. What you got, my friend? All right. Well, Let's see. Okay, I'm not on mute. So, you know, you guys do work with some dangerous, you know, say gamma rays. I know that those can be extremely dangerous. Do you guys wear anything that would give you any sense of have you been exposed to anything, you know, such as a badge or anything? Oh, Roger that. Okay, like the hypercolor they change. Nice. <laughs> so we weren't um, we weren't using actual we weren't using actual devices that were transmitting uh, radiation. We were just using passive okay. radiation detection. Now there's okay. radiation all the time uh, from outer space. Even the Earth is radiating, and uh, so we were just using two different radiation devices. So Matthew had a radiation analyzer called the Cosmic Watch. It was developed by MIT, and that that radiation analyzer was hooked to a laptop doing a um, data logging. Okay. And then I built, my, I, I designed my own radiation analyzer. It actually wasn't as sophisticated. It was just a dual spec. Well, I call it a dual spectrum, but it was two Geiger tubes. One tube is heavily shielded. 
one wasn't shielded. So I could differentiate between the harder energy and lower energy type radiation. And I will say that when his radiation analyzer was showing big uh, numbers, mine, which was doing clicks and beeps, was just going crazy. I mean, it was mm. corresponding. So we were just simply detecting these gamma bursts that were coming mm. through. And and it, unfortunately, that's everywhere. Everybody gets bombarded by them. It's nothing to do with government. It's natural stuff from outer space. And sure. we have to live with it. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I was curious about that. Yeah, the right. ISS has got some serious radiation going on there, man. They got to be yeah. shielded in that place. Yeah. Now, astronauts even experience in outer space, if they close their eyelids, they'll see flashes because, mm. it, um, you know, sometimes you'll experience that if you've ever gone to bed and you're, you're just dozing off and you see kind of a flash in your eyeball. Mm. Uh, that's often a cosmic ray that just went in and, and initiated a, uh, a trigger on one of your, your eyeballs. So that is, that's a natural thing that happens. But when you're in outer space, there's a tremendous amount of radiation striking you. But now when I've done radiation measurements, I find that uh, if you have an overcast night sky, you know, overcast with clouds, that's when I get the minimal amount of background radiation. But if the sun's out and it's a clear day, it's uh, like 20% more on the average that I measure from my radiation analysis. Totally makes Very sense. Well. Thank uh, you. Debsy Websey has an audience question from Baby Goat. What's up, okay. girl? Oh, so I thought it said Groot. That's why <laughs> no, I said that. <laughs> no, Baby Goat was asking, um, what are their thoughts on the UAP hearings? So this is for both of you. Um, I, I haven't heard from them just yet. Oh, are we talking about the... Um, congressional. The congressional. I thought that it was kind of a... It was a disappointment from the standpoint of what they covered. They, they only covered things that had been already been somewhat debunked. Uh, the bigger cases, they ignored that data. Uh, a lot of obfuscation and Framus were, I would say, Framus because of some gibberish that was mentioned. But it was not um, anything really concrete that gave us anything tangible that would get us excited. But the excitement was that the fact that there was a congressional hearing, and that's a step moving forward. And I'm excited about that aspect because we know that there will be follow-up on this. I agree. And I'll tell you, they bollocked us on that... Uh that Jeremy Corbell video, I, I challenge anybody to take a 35 millimeter camera, shoot it through a night vision device on deck and produce those, th those, uh, 3d pyramids. And I, I challenge anybody to produce something that looks like that. Cause I don't buy that. Not for a second. So that's my, that's my thought. Uh, who's next? Is that, uh, Monet to get, uh, Altman's reaction to that question to the hearings, yeah. sir. Um, I guess probably I was, taken back by a couple of things, just like a lot of other people, uh, the Wilson documents being mentioned, um, for one, um, as far as, you know, the video evidence, you know, if you don't go in expecting much, then you won't be too let down. So, <laughs> you know, I wasn't anything exciting for me. You know, I Dave, mean, they especially, I, I could see how somebody who doesn't know about this stuff could be taken, you know, kind of excited, but people that, you know, live with this every day and do this 24 seven, you know, kind of knew, weren't going to see much. Hey, hey, Dave, they they clearly sat there at the drive on on Sipper or Jay Wicks and go, what's the worst video we have where it's the most unclear what the hell we're looking at, where we'll have to stop it like 17 times to even discern that something's move happening. And that's the one they pick for that. I out the window uh, fighter video. So I, I 
I agree with I agree with your colleague Mason. Overall, definitely positive that they had those hearings, but they did. I have to raise that BS flag on the Maelstrom Air Force Base on the uh, Jeremy Corbell video, and as you, uh, but I am also gratified they mentioned uh, Wilson Davis. I know. I wish yep. there was a question in there, but there isn't. Uh, Nathan, <laughs> go ahead, brother. Well, uh, first of all, just again, thank you guys for being with us today uh, and talking about the work that's gone into this uh, documentary, and and we really did enjoy it a lot. What um, what would you like to see happen next in terms of how we can encourage, promote, uh, make it more distributed efforts like this to get more data? Uh, to develop platforms that are uh, easy to deploy, you know what, what? What are we thinking there in terms of how we roll this out and, and do more? Well, a lot of people, um, you know, can can do this. You don't need to go out and spend, you know, millions of dollars. Um, you can just save up and go and get yourself a nice pair of night vision goggles. I mean, if I was going to start someplace, night vision goggles and maybe up on my roof, <laughs> and just. Just keep just keep looking up and people will catch something and then just need to get that data and put it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. Citizen science, baby. That's it. Uh, David, uh, the most interesting thing that I heard in your movie is what you spoke about at the beginning is about communication with light. Now, I realize, you know, I, I wish Nathan had queued up the. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind with the lights and the tones. <laughs> because we'll remember that for the rest of our life, how that goes, by the way. Um, but I don't think I've heard anything, anyone else posit that theory or that hypothesis that that, their that that could be a form of communication and you are trying to communicate with them that way. And I'm absolutely fascinated. Could you speak about that in a little more detail, please? Yeah, it, it just follows what, what I mentioned earlier about many of the documented uh, stories going back, you know, before Hollywood, even that the, these reports saying that these things had lights that rotated or had lights that pulsed. And the fact that our RF technology continues to evolve and where we're going higher and higher frequency, and I would only assume that any ET would be using the electromagnetic spectrum at an even higher frequency because the higher the frequency you go, the more data sets you can put on that frequency. And behind me, when you look at the light wave transmitter, that uh, ultraviolet light wave transmitter is bumping uh, just above 800 terahertz in frequency, way above, you know, we're talking terahertz in frequency and we're modulating that as frequency and amplitude modulation. That is a big leapfrog in the electromagnetic spectrum as far as the, the attempt of communication into whatever we, we may be dealing with. And so that, that we're trying to work with them at their spectrum that they appear to be uh, transmitting uh, data sets to us. And when I um, was deciding what to transmit, uh, you know, I want to say that I had mentioned this to the group in UAPX. I said, uh, you know, I'm looking for stuff to transmit. And Kevin Day suggested the sounds of whales and dolphins. And Michael Hall, you know, said, well, he, he agreed on this. And so I, I got some recordings that were uh, from a, I can't, it's an anonymous supplier, but they, mm -hmm. I said, I want to have recordings of these uh, whales and dolphins in the ocean expressing happiness. I don't want a recording of a whale or a dolphin that's in a holding tank and saying, I want out of this thing. Right, 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 <laughs> so, right. 
So I wanted to have that type of communication and then to loop it. Now, the reason for transmitting that, uh, you know, whales and dolphins have been around for millions of years, and I'm not trying to do a parody of the Star Trek IV thing with Spock, although it seems to coincide with it. They've got much larger brains than we have. And if we transmit this data in a set of their, their sounds in, in the form of modulated light over different spectrums, we're sending out the message that we hold a species other than ourselves in higher regard. We're not um, holding ourselves in arrogant form. I think if I was to pick up a microphone and speak English, I, that's an arrogant form because English does not represent the world. And, and so you have, to, you have to move that aside. And then when you transmit this, you're, you're telling whatever's out there that you hold this other species in higher regard than ourselves or as the same level. But also, we accept species that don't look like us. And, and that may be one of the things that holds them back because maybe their appearances may startle us. And so this is a way of saying, here's a species that doesn't look like us. It doesn't startle us. And we're transmitting their information. And in, in a way to implore a response, I, I really just don't think that putting computer data or prime numbers or, or, or binary or whatever you want, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to be impressed by that. I am. This hmm. is absolutely fascinating. So you're going to turn that that whale sound into mm-hmm. into a, a light a, a light wave spectrum mm-hmm. like a that, that they can then receive a, as a in, in the form of light that they can receive. Is that Right. What I'm understanding? Yeah. Now, of course, if they send it back in their language, uh, all I could do is record it. But I don't right. think I could. I can't echo it, you know. But at least it's this first. It's like we're. It's like somebody speaking a different language who tries to introduce themselves. You may not speak their language, but you can understand. There's an attempt, and the, the gesture of attempt means that we're open to suggestion. You know, we you can try to contact us. Well, Nathan can he can decode it for you if you get something back. So yeah. don't worry about that. We've, no we've, problem. Yeah, we've got that part covered. But no, I, this is uh, I don't. Has anybody on the panel? Uh, Deb, Kevin, Steph, uh, has any? And Nathan, has anybody heard of this before? Before uh, David Mason, I have through musical notes in keys of C and A. So I wonder if that could correlate somehow with the sounds of the whales when they're making their sounds. I so mean, through light, reading. though. Through light is what I'm through, asking. Through light? Um, no. Th- no. Through auditory, yes, but not, not through light as of yet. No. Yeah. Okay. And we, Any, we were also else? transmitting, uh, you know, I play solo acoustic guitar. I recorded the CD and I was, I was looping that. Uh, and not trying to self-promote my guitar music, but I, I, I just figured it's no, it's no one else's copyright, so I, I figured I'd be okay with that. Sure. And then Carolyn Corey had her own music that was being transmitted, so a lot of that was just we could use our own stuff, so no one can claim, hey, we played, you know, Rush 2112 album, and, <laughs> and now we got to take it. Hey. And they, they find out, they find out that we. We need to uh, get a, you know, a copyright strike. I'm sure if we contacted them, they'd probably say, yeah, go ahead. You know, just give an honorable mention. But um, we didn't do that. (laughs) Getty Lee's coming after you, Mason. I can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but so that's why we used our own guitar music. But if he he was to contact us and say, yeah, please use that album or our latest album or something honoring Neil Peart, you know, yeah, I would do it. Absolutely. Right now, there's a Led Zeppelin fan saying it should have been over the hills and far away. Uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> I love it. You guys yeah, are I know so- that song. It's in the key of G. <laughs> all right. 
that might be the one. <laughs> All right. This is this was amazing. You guys are great. Uh we're gonna start yeah. our goodbyes with the aforementioned Miss Stephanie UAP experiencer. Yeah, well, I really liked uh Carolyn's mention at the end of your film that uh how we're trying to figure out how we fit beyond the bigger picture. So mm-hmm. what you guys are, you know putting forth towards the subject is just one piece of the puzzle. I know that we all serve in some form in this whole, you know, dynamic. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for creating this. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Kev. Well, I just want to say thank you. It's been (laughs) awesome meeting you guys. I really enjoyed your, your um, production and, I'm really interested in where you're going with this because I'm a musician too. So, yeah, I would really love if you maybe put this in a public domain. If I could record my own music yeah. and send it off into space in the form of light, that would be fantastic. I'd be all down yeah. for that. Yeah, man, you you could. Yeah, are you thinking about getting on that, like marketing, or or is it just so complicated? I, I you know, the one thing is a lot of people are asking me about, well, are you going to do this or take your inventions and do this other stuff and. I, I run a corporation uh, and I have so many responsibilities in doing that in mm-hmm. contracts that I, it's often I, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to relax and, and, and right. pretty much do nothing, you know, like a lot of guys want to do nothing. Exactly. And so, uh, it's hard for me to, to, to manage a lot of different things. And when you get your, your hands in so many activities, uh, the whole music thing, I, I wanted to follow that. Um, when I recorded the CD, I thought, wow, this is going to be a career. But I found out my friends who were really serious about it were, weren't doing very well financially from it. And I, I've got expensive mm-hmm. hobbies, so I, I couldn't afford to go there. I was in the music business for over 20 years. Oh, yeah? Oh, man. I, work, I managed bands, and I worked for all the record labels. I did A&R work. Wow, awesome. You guys are awesome, man. You guys are oh such a gosh. pair. Uh, by, yeah, right. By, by the way, David, before we turn it over to Debs to to speak her piece, are are you guys uh, aligned together now? Are you got? Do you guys have a your own group, or are you guys all disparate at this point? Um, we're trying to st- stick together. I mean, as as far as another group, I don't think I'll ever join a group ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do, it'll be a casual thing. I'm not going to join something that has leaders and vice leaders and founders and co-founders and all that jazz it just has to be a casual mm-hmm. thing let's go out learn something collect the data and have fun you know all right so, yeah i think dave Grohl's looking for another guitar player and at least mm-hmm. you should consider it um, another dave yeah <laughs> we're way over the quota <laughs> devs what you got buddy <laughs> Yeah, well, um, first of all, I definitely want to be best friends with both of you and not just because someone has really cool binoculars and the other one's just chill and cool. No, that's not it. It's because you guys are doing good work. We could be BFFs. Okay. Next thing is, I was thinking of Mr. Holland's opus. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with that movie. There's a scene where he wants to communicate music to his son and he uses a light show and he uses vibration. And I think people forget vibration is a big part of this. And I think there's a lot going on there. And I think you've touched on it and you're really capturing something really important with this. And I want to see more awesome stuff. Good job. And I think this movie was excellent. And the fact that you highlighted the silence is what we need right now. So thank you guys Mm -hmm. so much. Excellent work. Thank you very much. Thank you, future BFF. 
<laughs> she has no filter and no shame. We love her. Money, Nathan. Yeah, well, so while I can't be uh, a part of the Council of Daves, unfortunately, uh, I, again, really admire everything that you guys have done. And I have no doubt we're going to continue to see things that come out of the work that you've started here uh, and the things it's that you're It's not over yet. In. Exactly, right? Yeah. The story is not finished. And uh, that is incredibly exciting. And uh, I think we're entering into a period where the kinds of things that you did are just going to be more easily accessible for other people to do. And the, the evidence will continue to mount and will be irrefutable. So kudos again to, to kind of being part of that movement and uh, helping to, to get that going. Yeah, no, it's, it's really exciting. I've, I've got uh, another invention I, I can't talk about yet, but it, it, it's built and tested. Uh, it, it's also different than like, as you've seen with these other inventions and another one under development. Um, and I just want to keep, uh, creating new devices and just thinking outside the box. Fantastic. I'll tell you what, uh, I, I hopefully, uh, for, I have Altman on Twitter. I, are you on Twitter, David Mason? Uh, no, I'm only okay. on Facebook and, uh, I also have a new YouTube channel. Okay, well, we'll, it, we'll, I'll send him, you know, he's got our information in case, because if you want to come back on again and talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about, I'm fascinated. You're the first person I have heard talk about communicating with the phenomenon through light mm -hmm. to convert sound into, into a, a sine wave of light, into a, a waveform, let me call it, of light that they can receive. And particularly the, the particular animal that you chose and why you chose it Mm -hmm. Is even the, the entire thing is just absolutely fascinating. So, I uh, both of you, please feel free to come back on this forum and join us to talk about whatever you're doing. Sure. We will welcome you. Uh, and also, I want to say, uh, Mason, your mustache highly underrated. Nobody's mentioned that yet. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's I outstanding. I, I uh, accidentally, yeah, one time I shaved it by accident, and uh, you know, I. I was shaving and I hit one side and then I thought I'll shave the other side. Then I had the eight off look. So I took the whole thing off and then I was talking to people so, like this. Uh, you know, so we, we, we begin, we begin talking with David's hair and we end with David's hair. Yeah. So now you understand cab. Now you understand cab Altman. This is what yeah. it's about, man. We go from the ridiculous to the sublime. I mean, it's a sign. It's a sign. If you notice, this is alternating right. current comedy series, comedy series. Pal Shatner about us. Yeah. Pal and I do. Uh, I, uh, Deb is suggesting that I send you uh, my skincare formula, which can also be used as a beard bomb or in your case, a Charles Bronson esque mustache bomb. So uh, if, if you want some of that, let me know. Uh, Nathan is actually on the his my new label is coming out with his face on the can. So you will recognize this face when you receive DJ uh, bespoke skincare. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll have to grow the I'll have to grow the beard out a bit more. There you go. There you I'll go. Have to grow it out. When I when I did that, I did have people saying that I looked like uh, Kenny Loggins. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you uh, should play that you know. song, Danny's yeah. song from Loggins and Messina. I love it. <laughs> Get close to the danger zone there. Yeah. <laughs> this is DJ. If you expand your product line, can we have an anywho product? You know what, Deb? For you, yes, I will. I, I I'm willing to toy around with my ingredients and create something that you would endorse with your label on there. The answer is yes. Okay. Deb plush. 
Yeah, I'm so blessed to have four amazing co-hosts on this thing, as you can tell, uh, David Altman and David Mason. And uh, it was an honor to have both of you. And like I said, the forum's open when you want to come back and have some fun while we're talking about these serious issues that you guys are spending a lot of your emotions, your time, your money, and your intellect in. And uh, on behalf of uh, Stephanie, uh, Kevin, Debs, Money Nathan and myself, uh, this is Calling All Beings saying peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. We're always wondering what's up around the bend. Okay. Oh.